this podcast is called Thanks kids This is a podcast about books, reading, listening, creating and enjoying them No prior knowledge is needed No level of education required If you're interested in the literary world Come with me, Jasper Peach While I draw back the velvet curtain And have some informal chats with people who are part of the biz I'm a slow reader I have some pretty funky brain fog going on and I love books. It takes me a while to read them and I mostly listen to them. So I wanted to make a podcast that reflects all types of participation in the enjoyment of literature. Slow Reader is recorded and produced on unceded, stolen Jar Jar Warren country. Release is such an evocative concept. It conjures up the juicy topics of faith and trust and then disbelief shock, lies, and scepticism. My guest today, Sarah Krasnstein, is the author of two beloved books, The Trauma Cleaner, 2017, and The Believer, 2021. The latter, I listened to earlier this year on my walks around the block, and the former was such a pivotal work for me that after I read it, I went and got a tattoo of some of Sarah's words on my left shoulder. So as well as these books, Sarah Krasnstein has written some incredible investigative pieces about the state of mental health support in this country for the quarterly essay. And recently for the Jewish quarterly, the extraordinary feats of the Genera boys, so-called enemy aliens shipped from Britain to Australia in 1940. So we'll chat about belief, diving deep into subject matter and how the heart behaves when doing so in this episode of Slow Reader. Welcome, Sarah. It is such a pleasure to be speaking with you today. Thank you, Jasper, for having me. Well, I guess to give people a bit of background, um, if you're coming in cold and you haven't read any of these books but you're curious, um, Sarah's books involve a deep dive into a subject. But the part that I love the most is, is just how closely you work with people to tell the story of their lives. So the trauma cleaner written about Sandra Pankhurst, um, who ran a, a business cleaning the sites of homicides and homes where hoarding had taken place. But oh, the story is so much broader than that. And then there's the believer that it delves into multiple subjects, both here and in the States. And these six people are connected in all these unexpected ways around the power, but also the notion of belief. So firstly, oh my God, Sarah, just massive respect for your process. I'm picturing you doing beautiful mind kind of charts on your wall and your windows. Um, figuring out how this book will all come together. But but I, I must ask you, where does this hunger for the story come from? So, like, I think any, I could give you, I will give you an answer, but um, I think that it's probably would be, I want to say specious, but probably more like superficial because it really is something that's just, my own personal curiosity and like I write about it in the intro to the believer you know uh curiosity is not a coincidence it's not uh you know luck we are driven by uh these kind of longings and yearnings to find out more to be close to something quite far away from us or to kind of have the certainty of knowing or understanding so I think those parts of the curiosity um, are quite deeply seated um, and probably go back to my childhood. But 
the short answer and the kind of operating uh, everyday answer is that I'm just so bloody curious that I don't even put on the journal or the writer's hat. I am just like, I need to find out what's going on with this person. I just would like to know everything about them. So that's how kind of that's a gut feeling and that you need that. It doesn't have to be about a person, it could be about a topic or, you know, an area or place. But in order to do anything long form, which is going to live with you for years or months at the very least, um, you have to have that kind of falling in love sense of passion at the beginning, because, you know, if you don't, it's not going to get better over time. I <laughs> uh, really, that really resonates for me, just the curiosity around around people and and when I think about my curiosity I'm so nosy it takes me three hours to go out and buy a loaf of bread because I run into someone and what's, what's going on with that and what did you feel and people don't say into mind I think you and I are kind of similar where we've got open faces where where the kind of person someone will come up and, and tell you their problems or their joys or all of it but for me I think it stems from a curiosity of of understanding myself is that yes is that part of it for you I mean I think it's that's that would be definitely part of it um and that openness to kind of really find out what's at the heart of that particular curiosity mm. is not just an integral to the process it might be the entire process because with that kind of long-form exploration of a person or something in depth mm. what you think you're getting at the start is only a very small part of it. So it, it reveals itself to you over time. You have these deeper significances and these deeper connections. And so you are finding out about the material, but inevitably by writing about it, you're finding out what you think about the material. And that might not be what you thought you would think or what how you thought you would react. And so you are inevitably opening up doors about yourself. Um, mm. or into yourself. And that's not always a very comfortable part of the process. Um, but I think if you're going to get something of value or something that's kind of new, it, it will, it's it's essential to kind of have that openness. I think with that curiosity comes humility as well. Like you say, you have that, that instantaneous falling in love with a subject or a person or a story and having the awareness that it might not be what you think. And yeah. And it fuels that the passion to keep going and keep, I don't know, is it digging for you or is it just sitting with and witnessing and putting in a question here and there and then noticing? Like, can you can you tell me about your process with with anyone that you've you've written the story of? Just like That's example. a very lovely how how did you find them and then what happened? Do you do you have a drink together and then then what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a very lovely question. I, I think the um point that you made about that difference between uh you know doing it doing it or just sitting with it is kind of everything. Because I mean maybe if you're doing a shorter format, like you know, a, a, a you know, any of the shorter forms for magazines or newspaper or book chapter chapter, you don't need to have that kind of unfurling over time. But certainly for the books that I would like to be writing and the ones that I like voraciously consume, 
the duration is, is a part of the process. So you need character depth and change over time. And you're only going to get that. And you're only going to really know anything over a very long period of time. So my process, such as it is, and I wish that I did have a wall planner or like a diagramming place. I mean, you are much more grown up in that um, process and generous in your assumption that I follow it or that it's a process at all. Um, and while it's definitely my impulse to have a process because I do come from an academic background, I come from a legal background where time is accounted for and very neat blocks and the process is replicable every time. And here, if you're doing it right, you kind of need to uh, adapt the process to the material itself each time. And that's glory, the glory and tragedy of the uniqueness of each book. But there are certain things that have held true, you know, over the last um, ne nearly 10 years of doing this. Uh, and that is, I don't hound anybody for interviews or um, so that I can write about them. So the pro my process would self-select somebody that's into it. Um, if they're not really willing to share or they're not willing to share to the degree that I would find interesting or valuable or true, uh, and that's of course entirely subjective, then you know it won't go the distance. So it has to be somebody who I feel comfortable with, who is comfortable with me and who is uh, open about themselves and you know understands that this is a different process to it, it's my understanding of what they're telling me it's not ghost writing it's not you know um, any of those things so that's the kind of those are the terms that each relationship has had in common mostly of course if i'm interviewing someone for a shorter piece then it's you know might be in and out um but to really find something valuable you'll be hanging out a lot and i prepare questions i have prepared who what where when why type questions Mostly I ignore them um, and it just looks like having a chat and having many hundreds of chats over a long, long period of time. Are you transcribing all of this just from a, a purely mechanical point of view? I, I interview people and I'm exactly the same as you. I write all my questions and then ignore them. Um, yeah. and, and then I avoid the transcribing for months. I hate it. I don't like to do it. None of the programs work. What, how do you do this? So uh, the boring and like damply disappointing answer is yes, I transcribe everything. And I have learned to do that as, as quickly as possible after the fact. I think that, and this is where it gets weird, for the first time, uh, that there is some sort of energy that needs to be captured directly after the interpersonal exchange. My most, I mean, I'll, the things that I've written that I've been closest to being happy with are things that occurred in that immediately um, following period. And basically the process is I write out from the transcript. So Again, that kind of lawyerly type A pro professorial part of my persona uh, fucking hates that. Oh, am I allowed to swear? 
okay, that, hey, <laughs> fucking hates that. Um, Please that yeah. I, I would like to gather all my little acorns for the winter and then uh, write it all up in a document and write out the outline and apportion the relevant parts of the notes to the relevant parts of the outline and then write the whole thing up. Nothing that I write creatively works that way. I have, you know, outlines that I might go with. I have things that I might, but mostly I'm writing out from the transcript. I'm following, um, you know, a gold nugget and it might be a fact and a, or it might be a, a, a feeling tone in the way someone said something. It might be a, a pattern uh, between conversations but it's not something I can plan for in that way of uh, kind of John McPhee style um, collation and apportioning an outline. It's much more an intuitive process of finding that thing that jumped out. And then in the process of, you know, very uh, closely transcribing everything that's said, I'm incorporating my notes about well, the environment, about what the person was or was not doing, um, my own reactions. And it's, very, it's like a living diary note of the exchange. And that's the, 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 the kind of the, the heart of whatever it will become. Um, yeah. Yes. And that's, that's why I love your writing so much, because I feel like I'm there. I can smell what you can smell. I can see, I can feel the textures of, of what's happening. It, it's so it's inclusive in that way yeah I, I've been a, um, well I'm, I'm not anymore I've kind of retired but I, I've been a, a civil celebrant for 15 years and it's the same thing you know I meet the couple um, they come over usually to my house and I'm baking something and we have tea and, and I just I just watch them I just watch them and yeah. watch how does, does someone pour the tea for someone else do they know how they they take it um how are they looking at each other? What are they like when they're listening to one another? Um, and I record that conversation and it, and their ceremony is is written out from the transcript. It's uh, And I might meet people twice, but like you, I pay very close attention to everything that's going on and, and it all informs the gold nugget, which is who are these people and how can we be with them as they move forward in their lives in this way you know marriage that's so beautiful whatever, but, it, but it's it's about all gathering together and, and bearing witness I think and yes. then just going yeah and, and off you go yeah. and you'll be around yeah a hundred percent I mean yeah it's the the, it's the attentiveness is is not just mm. observing it's so many other emotional factors go into it, that level of attentiveness that's a yeah no I, I get mm. it it's been a really good um, training ground for for what I want to be doing and what I am doing a little bit more of, which is is writing. Um, I particularly I enjoy the way you write the story. You you are really present in the narrative, and that's not the way books often are when they're about someone else's story. And I I just think, well, of course you're there. Of course you're in the narrative, just by your presence in people's lives the narrative changes and I think this story should reflect this um what do you I mean what do you bring with you in terms of do you protect yourself from other people's I guess I don't want to be too woo-woo here but um from if someone's really 
really depressed and then you're really with them and you're really present with them, do you, are you able to protect yourself from absorbing that emotion? Do you try to or do you let yourself feel that as well? This is it's a really interesting question. I had no concept that that was a thing or important um, for a very long time. Uh, but in my, uh, I would say my personal life uh, for many decades and then in my professional life. In The Believer, one of the stories is a woman called, who I call Lynn. And I met her in a homeless shelter in New York City in the East Village where um, I had been doing kind of research for another, hopefully, book. Um, and I was there, I mean, pretty much uh, full-time for, for months. And one of the women, there was something that very kind of um, uh, disturbing that happened. And I was in the hallway after um, a woman had been uh, arrested for selling drugs. And I just found the whole thing so distressing and startling. And I was really terribly uh, ner nervous for her. And one of the older women came out in the hallway and she said something like, you have to be present to do what you do, but you don't have to give them like a piece of your soul. And it was it was phrased so beautifully. Uh, and I hadn't realized that while I had been kind of doing that, she had taken that level of interest in what I was trying to do. And it really has stayed with me since then. Um, and yeah, other writers who I respect greatly have mentioned like different practices that they have in terms of you know, maintaining a healthy boundary. It has to be porous and you have to kind of feel someone's pain, but it can and it should move through you. Um, you know, each of us has enough of our own pain without carrying the full burden of everyone else's. And we can't really be of assistance if we did that. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I don't have any like full practices that I do. It's more kind of a returning to exactly that idea that, you know, you can put that down and that, you know, what in the end is yours to carry and what in the end is someone else's to carry. Yeah, I think that's such a, a lifelong lesson, isn't it, about what's mine and what's someone else's and what's ours. And it's, it's an ongoing work in progress. Absolutely. Yeah. I'd love um, if you could share some work with us. Um, I, I asked you if you could pick a passage yes. that, that you're quite proud of. I'd love to hear what you've got you've chosen so that's a, I love this question and I love the idea that we can and should be proud of our stuff um mostly I always just feel like oh shit I wanted that to be better or different or whatever um and only kind of with some distance can I look back and I can be like oh no I'm I, I am proud of that I think that's the best I could do with that or it said what I'd like for it to have said um so anyway, I think that uh, the, I'm reading from The Believer and I'm from, reading from the American copy, which has a very jazzy cover. And it's the first three paragraphs, which uh, don't, which introduce the book. And this is six interwoven stories. Um, and it does so in a way that, I, in a happily indirect way, because I had done many versions of this introduction that kind of were more clinical, and this one, I feel 
um, invited a particular kind of reader to sit and and kind of and listen. So and again, and again, I feel like now I'm talking. Somebody the other day who was a musician said got slightly pissed off that we were talking about music, and he was like, "It's like you know whatever." Uh, dancing about architecture. And sometimes I feel well, I'm dancing about architecture when I try to talk about writing, but uh, I'll just do the reading now. Uh, okay. This book is about ghosts and gods and flying saucers, certainty in the absence of knowledge, how the stories we tell ourselves to deal with the distance between the world as it is and as we'd like it to be can stunt us or save us. The word distance comes from the Latin distantia, which means standing apart. We've invented numerous ways of measuring this apartness. There's Euclidean distance, the shortest path between two points, assuming the absence of obstacles. Manhattan distance, the number of blocks a taxi must travel to reach a destination in New York City, assuming delusionally the absence of obstacles. Canberra distance, a less colorful metric for the distance between pairs of points in a vector space. And Chebyshev distance, which concerns itself with the moves of a king on a chessboard. We have painstakingly devised metrics for the distance between notes in a chord, strings of computing code, certain and possible events, periods of time, points in outer space, and the magnitudes of removal, of removal between ourselves and the actor Kevin Bacon. Psychological distance is a way of measuring the cognitive separation between ourselves and other people, events, or times. It is the felt experience that something or someone is close to or far away from us here and now which is to say that there is not a direct relationship between psychological distance and objective distance. Something far away in space or time can feel closer than something right beside us and vice versa. Psychological distance is our superpower and our Achilles heel, a way of flying or falling. Ah, beautiful. Certainty in the absence of knowledge. I love, yeah, I love it. I, it's interesting, yeah, usually when I'm listening to an audio book and I have, I have an inkling, I might reach out to this author and see if I can chat with them afterwards um, for this podcast or for something else. Um, I stop about 65 times on my 20-minute walk and I email myself questions that come up. And, um, but that didn't happen with this book. It didn't happen. And I, and I was thinking about that this morning when I was doing a bit of prep. I'm like, why? Because I searched in my email. I'm like, why didn't I email myself any questions? And then I remembered um, and I felt, I felt like it was summertime again and I remembered what all the soil was doing in the leaves and everything and um, and that it felt, and it was from that introduction, it felt very important, was really clear, I just needed to let it wash over me um, oh, and let so myself cool. have that deeper connection and not interrupt it with feeling the need to be busy or, or letting these thousand thoughts in my mind take over. I just needed oh, to be so with cool. it and be with the work. Um, there is nothing surface about about your work. And as you say, it, it can be years that you spend with people to get to the gold nugget, to get to the nut. Um, does it feel like pressure? Do you put pressure on yourself to to get it right? Oh, yeah. Like the, it's unrelenting. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And it's like an unattainable goal because the goal, mm. no matter how much you get, that goalpost keeps on moving. You just can't listen to that though. Yeah. But it's there. <laughs> yeah. Oh gosh. It, it I don't feel the pressure when I'm when I'm reading it or listening to it. I just feel that that golden clarity that you've 
you've got to the you've got to the center of it. You really, and it's this gift. I I wonder um, people that you've written about. Is it clarifying for them to read about your I mean, experience of their life? To to the extent that I I have had that feedback, it it has been very heartening. Um, yeah, with both of the books and the quarterly essay, um, yeah, I that that's what they've said. The ones who have told me have said that that they it's a weird experience. They've all said that it's a weird experience to see themselves kind of on the page and also to know kind of how closely I was listening or watching, mm-hmm. which I understand would be freaky. Um, uh, but yeah, there was, yeah, I haven't screwed it up so far. Not to say that <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I won't in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But again, I, I mean, you're not doing, you can't write towards that. That's the, mm-hmm. I mean, because then it just becomes a PR exercise. And mm. it's a really tricky thing to have to balance, um, you know, compassionate understanding uh, with the objectivity of nonfiction. So, mm. you know, we're constantly juggling those two things. I think it's an incredible thing for any person to truly be seen by another person. Um to, to let those preconceived notions fall away and really spend time with and and let their experience um, become part of your understanding as, as you see it. Um, and I, I feel like what you were saying earlier about um, the people that you end up writing about, they have a, a similar level or a similar kind of state of curiosity and openness. And it's almost mm-hmm. like... I don't know, like we're, we're all mirrors walking around in the world and we either create this amazing feedback loop where connection is possible and, and honesty is possible or we come up against a surface that doesn't reflect and is turned away from us. Um, and that's, and the, the true reflective surfaces really regarding one another, that's where the, that's where the brightness happens that's where where we get to the gold nugget you know that's what's so beautiful um you you're writing you write about so many subject matters that most people or a lot of people find too tender they're they're kind of bruise points death and you know um what I, I understand that you're curious but why this why this hunger to understand these and to reflect on and to write about and to explore these topics that that are so mystifying? I mean, I think you would have to ask my therapist, which is not available <laughs> for these sorts of things. But it, it's funny, like, I don't set out to be like, now I'm going to write about death. Like, it's, it's a much more subconscious thing than that. Um, or, you know following like the six stories of the believer for four years and being like there's something here that they're all saying the same phrases over and over again they all sound the same blah, 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 but and then being like oh it's grief or longing or death or so i i mean i think that there's something incredibly uh heartening and safe and connecting in being frank 
about our fears and our trigger points and our anxieties. And that certainly was not normal where I came from. And it's still not normal in our, you know, greater social discourse. And I find it terrifying to talk euphemistically or act euphemistically. I find that very unsafe and very scary. So there's a safety in naming uh, these things and knowing those things and doing it not alone. I mean, I writing is totally solitary, but I write factually. So I'm always kind of anchored in a world or the world. And um, so maybe that, maybe that's it. Um, I don't know. <laughs> That's a long way of not answering the question. But like, no, you don't have to know. Yeah. Um, you know, I think I think the gold is in the meandering rather than the tick the box, oh. you know? Yeah, it's all it's all juicy stuff. Um now, routine, do you I mean I hate I hate those how do you have it all questions? Like I want to translate that question to be what are the ways that you shape shift to include everything in your life you need to feel whole? And what damage control do you do to manage the inevitable fallout? <laughs> um, which is really what people are asking. Um, but do, yes. you have, do you have a routine? I mean, I know that you you, you have a family and, and work and writing and there's a lot going on in your life. Um, what does it, is there an average day? What does your day look like? Oh yeah, I mean my my life is fairly like routinized to um accommodate the keeling of the ship. Uh so yeah, I have to juggle all those things. I've got two young kids. Uh and you know com- community commitments, my partner, friends, all, all of these things. Occasionally I I exercise. Uh but no, each day I each day that I have the child care for it. I am doing a full day of work from, you know, most of the, those childcare hours would be devoted ideally to writing something that didn't exist before that day. Um, and of course the ideal isn't the norm most days because there's emails and admin and invoicing and all the rest, uh, sick kids and you get sick and blah, blah, blah. But, um, you know, in a very loose way, I would, the writing time is my, you know, my work hours. And then outside of that, I'm doing all of the messy life stuff. Um, and I, I don't email myself questions, but I have a note, I, the notes on my phone, you know, you know, in a more ideal world, it would be like a leather bound notebook with a beautiful, fancy pen, but I have probably, There's at least a hundred of them, but I've got a notes file on the phone for each project that I am working on and each project that I would like to be working on in the future. And yeah, I mean, the ideal situation is I'm working on one big thing. And then in my, uh, you know, personal non-writing life, whenever I'm struck by something like some beautiful kid's book at bedtime or some random show or something I overhear or I learn about or I see, I am understanding that or filtering it through the prism of what I'm thinking about for the thing that I'm writing. And there is that kind of synchronicity, entirely fortuitous, but meaningful to me in the inward landscape of that 
work itself or my emotional life or whatever. And so that'll go into the file. And those connections that kind of are everything for my work are mostly made when I'm away from the desk. So I'll be walking with the pram or I'll be at the supermarket. And again, very frustrating for the lawyer in me because it seems like a completely random, messy process. And I'd like everything to be the opposite. And that's just not my life. So um, I think we end up with something very rich and thick when we can kind of have some crumb of stillness amidst life because it all goes back into into the work. Um, but yeah, so I mean, that's that's the routine such as it is. And I, you know, if it's crunch time, I will work after the kids are in bed or during the younger ones nap time or on weekends occasionally. But, it, you know, I try very much to have these enforced end dates so that I can have that that free time in my own head, which is still very uncomfortable. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. I know working on, on any project where you are so, um, you're so deep in it, it, it filters through everything. It filters through how you cut up a carrot and how you draw it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, gosh. And thank, thank God for um, deadlines. Otherwise, things would never, ever be finished because they'll never be oh. perfect. <laughs> How, can, can I just, how, how do you cut a carrot? Oh, well, I like to leave the peel on because there's some nutrients right there. Um, nice. <laughs> really? Nice. We're going to talk about I'd like, I'd like to know, like, are you, a, are you a plank person? Are you a coin person? Like, what, what is your style? Not, not coins. Um, I like to do little, little sticks um, because when they are presented to my kids, they will then eat them because that's pleasing oh. to them. <laughs> Yeah, so I'm just on board with whatever's going to get them through the day. <laughs> it's so interesting, like that we have a debate in this house about uh, coins or or the sticks or the plank. Yeah. I like a like a uh, like a roughly hewn plank. Yeah. Uh, anyway, sorry. Yes, very interesting. So uh, I forget where we were, but yeah, sorry. Yeah, no, I think that's that's it. Um, Zoom is telling me we have four minutes left, and okay. I'm very, all right. I'm very. I feel a lot of pressure now because I've got 75 more questions. But, but I, I think I'm going to ask you the questions that I, I gave you a bit of lead time on. So what are yes. you reading at the moment? So I uh, try to, and again, this is evidence of that uh, very type A personality, but I feel well when I have a fiction and a nonfiction and then whatever I have mm. to read outside of that form, what I'm working on, on the wow. go. So... I'm interviewing Steve Tultz at Sydney Writers Festival next week about his newest novel, which is called Here Goes Nothing, which I am loving. And I'm almost mm. upset that I have to interview him about it because when I love something this much, I just want to be like, yeah, I love it. And just leave, leave yeah. myself alone with loving it instead of having <laughs> to think about it. But it's, it's and I have you read it yet, Jessica? No. Because one of the characters is a celebrant, a bit like a radical, very interesting I, I would love to discuss that with you um, at some mm. point. Uh, so that is uh, one of the things I'm reading. I'm about to just start, uh, start Alexis Wright's Tracker. Oh, Very right. excited. And I have about to, uh, um, two pages left of a 1974 nonfiction book by John McVeigh called The Binding, The Curve of Binding Energy. And it's kind of about the, you know, effect of nuclear um, 
harm and imminent destruction as it was in the world then, but he's one of my favorite nonfiction writers. So that's what I've got on the go immediately. Yeah. Mm. And has anything stood out to you over the last 12 months as, as an absolute favorite? Most recently, I finished Jackie Bailey's um, book, which is about to come out in a few weeks, and it's called The Eulogy, autofiction, kind of about intergenerational trauma and family systems Ooh. and love and grief. Jackie Bailey, like this is a going to be a very big, uh, hopefully very big book. It's a beautiful book and just got so much heart. And so that's definitely one of the standouts. Um, I also just finished for something that I... Uh, I'm writing a book called, it's kind of critical theory, but not, it's called Seven Versions of an Australian Badland. It's about, by Ross Gibson. And it's about white mythologies of the landscape and Mm -hmm. how they've figured specifically in relation to a stretch in Queensland, but around the nation generally. And I found that really interesting. Um, For one of my Saturday paper TV reviews last year, um, I think I finished uh, a book that has just, I've now given three copies of it as presents. It's uh, called Mm. Moon of the Crested Snow, and it's by a First Nations Canadian author called Wabgashib Rice. Amazing, kind of slim, concise novel, Mm. just fabulous piece of writing. Mm. Um, And always when I have this question, the mind goes blank. Oh, Chloe Hooper's (laughs) new book, Bedtime Stories. I read that a few months ago, just incredibly moving. It's got beautiful illustrations by Sarah Walker, uh, the who does children's books illustration yes. and it is an incredibly moving moving memoir so there's so Amazing. much goodness out there oh so juicy you've given me quite a list <laughs> to look into um the the eulogy one sounds like my pick for where I'd go first that sounds very oh. very exciting She's amazing. Yeah. Delicious. Um, Sarah, thank you so much for talking with me today. It's been such a pleasure to chat at last. Thank you so much for having me. I've been looking forward to this human contact. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Sarah. Thanks for listening to this podcast, produced and presented by me, Jasper Peach. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jasperpeachsays. And I'd like to offer a huge amount of gratitude to Monique Bodger for her original music created just for us. Many thanks to Sarah Krasnerstein for joining me. Sarah is in my top three writers of all time, so it was really just such a pleasure. Next time, I'll be joined by my good friend, Elsa Wilde, author of many wonderful books. With her new one, You'll Be a Wonderful Dad, advice on becoming the best father you can be. Looking forward to that chat very much. Till then, may your library books all be located, returned before their due dates, and your fines paid in full.